Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have uh, Barry Stifel and Amila Leifesti. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for, for, for that correct, uh, correction. Uh, the um, authors of a book about um, sustainable heritage. So the book is Sustainable Heritage. And so thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So tell me about your backgrounds. I, you can kind of, you know, I know you, there's two of you, so you can take turns or however you want to do it. Um. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I can kick off. That's fine. Um, so I was really interested in architecture and went to school to study architecture at University of Oregon. And that program has a pretty good emphasis on sustainable design and also sort of the human contexts of design. And so as I entered the work field, I worked at a really wonderful firm, small firm in Missoula, Montana, and got exposure to a bunch of different projects and found myself, unlike a lot of my peers, really interested in the remodels and the mm. adaptive use projects. So where, where some peers were really excited to be working on a brand new bank that was developing fly ash concrete or a new hospital, I was really smitten with um, reconfiguring a kitchen or trying to fit in a stair that was more accessible and sort of the puzzling of it. And so right. I came to realize that through architecture, what I was really sort of interested in was historic preservation and how we can change the built environment and adapt it, but do so while trying to retain what's important to people, what gives people connection to places. And so through that, I found my way back to graduate school and eventually into teaching with a graduate program in historic preservation. Yeah, uh, I grew up in the college town of Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, where I first became interested in overlap of historic places and environmental conservation when I was in high school. And this was related to uh, classes I was taking in architectural history in, in high school as well as a volunteer work I, I was doing uh, with uh, natural habitat rehabilitation. And then later on in college, I studied environmental policy at Michigan State University and did a master's in urban and environmental planning at University of Michigan and did a historic preservation degrees at Eastern Michigan University and Tulane University. Oh, very impressive. And that I think it's interesting that early on, you both early on in your careers, you both saw that overlap because I don't know if 
very many people in each silo see that overlap. I think a lot of people just look at either the environmental policy or the preservation policies and don't see how they, they can be connected. I think that's definitely true. I went to a school that had a really wonderful historic preservation program that was actually in the same building, located in the same building, and going through my architecture program, I didn't know about that really. So we were learning a lot about sustainable design, but historic preservation was fairly siloed, and, and I came to learn about it a little bit later and, and st saw some of the overlaps. And I know the program since then has done some more sort of merging together of, of the programs, but it's definitely true that we tend to work in these sort of disciplinary silos and, and that there isn't always that recognition of the overlap. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I guess that kind of takes us into the, the is there, was, was there something particular that, that was like your why preservation called to you or was, was it just that that was more interesting than like the new buildings or some of the other options? Um, you were okay. Yeah. Okay. For me, the interest in old buildings came from two things. One, sort of the aesthetic, if you will, not just sort of the two-dimensional superficial, but sort of in the more rich version of the word, the aesthetic of mm -hmm. the contrast of old and new. Right. That from early on in looking at uh, precedent projects and studying architecture, I thought places where there was an old existing component and then something that was introduced to it was, was really compelling. And then through that finding, um, yeah, finding, finding ways to keep what was important and change what was necessary to update it to current modern living. So there wasn't a specific moment I can point to, um, but but just sort of appreciating that contrast or that uh, juxtaposition of old and new. Mm -hmm. And then also this, this quote that I came across at some point in my, in my studies that I can't exactly remember the attribution, but I believe it's a Marlon Blackwell quote, which goes along the lines of that the greenest building is the one that's already built, is yes. something from Carl Elefante. But then Marlon Blackwell counters that the greenest building is actually the one that is loved. And I really like that and think that that is sort of the essence of historic preservation is to keep places that are loved and to continue their lifespan, which is something that gets back to the uh, really important tenant or principle within sustainability. Right, right. Um, yeah, so and I, I, I know the first time I realized that there was an intersection between um, conservation and historic preservation and sustainable building. Uh, it was probably like 10 years ago at a traditional building conference and they were talking about green building and green building products and that was something that i really took away from from the whole concept was that to be green the product should be able to be repaired where the majority of new things are are you know still made in a disposable way even though they might be harvest more sustainably or you know something like that they're still not made to be repaired and continue continue its lifespan further so when you when you said that you know the building being loved that triggered that in my brain mm -hmm. um can you um can both of you talk about the um intersection of uh environmental conservation and historic preservation well the way i see it is uh Heritage is life, you know, the rest is just details. And you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but in honesty, you know, 
humans are a species that are completely defined by our cultural heritage or you know preservation as we often call it here and if we seriously want to get the whole sustainability thing down related to the ecological well-being of the planet we need to do a better job of figuring out the intersection with the way we do preservation and, and our cultural practices um, you know the, the two are inseparable uh, particularly during this Anthropocene period yeah, and I would add to that, that that's sort of the charge and the, and the forward-looking thing, what Barry said so eloquently. The other thing I'd add is part of the book that we did was also looking back and looking at how this relationship has been over time. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting to realize that this isn't the first time uh, if we do, if we are able to accomplish what Barry talked about and see preservation and sustainability is really much more inherently linked, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be the first time um, that around the founding of a lot of organizations, including our American National Park Service, there have been times when cultural and natural resources have required stewardship and has been have been understood as as um, sort of needing similar tending and care and maintenance and um, the work and effort to make them be more enduring. So it's interesting to think that this fusing that we're calling for is actually something that has happened in the past and various things, including sustainable design starting to morph to be much more technological and much more about new products has actually uh, sort of pulled them further apart. And so what we're advocating for and bringing them back together and seeing them, them linked and tied as one isn't completely novel. <laughs> there is precedent for it. We have had this <laughs> viewpoint in the past. Yeah. I think I think that's important because I think I think it's just human nature, but I think that we know things and then we forget them <laughs> and then we relearn them. <laughs> whether it's whether it's just personally or you know generationally where we go back to, to where things start and realize that oh we, we did know this before. Right. So yeah. So how can uh, sustainable design help overcome climate and cultural changes? Well, uh, I don't see sustainable design as overcoming climate or cultural change. I see sustainable design working with climate and cultural changes to solve wicked problems that we have in the world. Uh, so it's not so much confrontational, but um, you know, working to address issues so that they become synthesized and mitigated. Yeah, definitely agree and would add that I think one of the things about sustainable design is that the, the word design is in there. And so the sort of design thinking can help at really micro scale so we can design a specific product that is biodegradable or we could design you know um, these sort of individual components or pieces design an intervention in a building to make it useful for much longer etc um, but we can also design really large systems and have change that happens uh, sort of at a much higher scale or a much higher higher level and that designing is essentially about trying to refine and improve. It's about this sort of inherently optimistic point of view that with thoughtful effort and change, we can improve a current 
uh, situation or circumstance and we can design it or put thought and effort into improving it and making it better. And that, that makes sense because I think that sometimes people look at the challenges that we face and feel like, well, it doesn't make a difference. Like what the, the things I do don't make a difference because it, it doesn't impact on that bigger. So I think you need to have the smaller and the bigger, you know, the, the, the macro and the micro. Yeah, so the um, your chapter seven is titled shortcomings within community design planning and policy. Um, can you explain the shortcomings you see and how they can be fixed? Well, uh, chapter seven, we cover a sort of a potpourri of different policy shortcomings to consider from smart codes to water management, population stabilization within carrying capacity, uh, preventing demolition and building waste generation and cross synthesizing the effectiveness of historic preservation and environmental conservation districts. The underlying theme throughout is to strategize how behavioral changes can be made that reduce ecological footprints at a community level. Uh, that sometimes inventing some new technology or widget is not what is needed. That what is needed in some instances is a change in what we do and how we do it. Uh, that in a sense is how I would summarize that chapter. I really like that you called demolition building waste that like that. I, I really like that. <laughs> that I, mm -hmm. when, when I heard that, I, I underlined that <laughs> as I'm taking my notes. <laughs> so um, the uh, conclusion sections was lessons from the past for the future. And I know we kind of talked about a little bit about that when you talked about, you know, some of it looks backwards, but what lessons from the past would you like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I'll start kick this one off and then Barry can add if, if there are things that I'm, I'm, when there are things, I'm sure there will be things <laughs> that I miss. Um, which is the first thing which echoes something that he said in his last answer is that, that we are in a time when the human impacts on the planet are fairly undisputed. And even if disputed, the fact that we as a human species have the leverage to make change that's undeniable. And so we need to be um, the stewards of both protecting, maintaining, helping to endure our cultural heritage and also the ecological processes, the natural systems that enable us to continue to live as organisms. And so um, we've talked about that it needs to happen at sort of a personal level with personal changes, but then also that there need to be much larger systematic level changes. You know, these are, is it worth changing my light bulb for a higher efficiency light bulb if you know huge <laughs> systems and corporations um you know have the potential to to have way way bigger energy impacts etc right and one of the things i thought about as i was um have been thinking about preservation and heritage and the moment that we're in right now is that as terrible as it is and not to downplay any of the you know real traumas and difficulties that the COVID-19 era is enforcing on many people. It's also a moment where we are needing to reconsider and redefine and change a lot of our cultural practices and other practices. So things even down to a handshake, right? right. It's like one of the simplest human exchanges, one of the simplest uh, kind of components of, of a small cultural exchange is needing to be rethought, right? We're moving to fist bumps and, and elbow wags and curtsies <laughs> and, and all of these other ways of sort of communicating our hellos. And so I do think as a lot of these bigger system patterns and our personal behaviors are 
needing to be changed because of this, you know, sort of traumatic event that this can be a catalyst for, for change. It's going to have to be a catalyst for change. And that I hope in the rebuilding or remaking or redesigning of our personal practices and also bigger systems, we can incorporate what I like to call and what others before me have talked about as a conserving attitude, which I think is very natural for preservationists to think about, right? And also sustainability minded people to think about, which is if you have something that is of value, how can you renew it? How can you uh, repair it or fix it instead of replacing it? So it's sort of the opposite of the throwaway attitude. Um, And so the conserving attitude is something that might be familiar to generations from say like wartime rationing, et cetera. (laughs) And I don't mean the conserving attitude in this. We all need to, you know, deprive ourselves and um, go back to, you know, these, these, uh, not very pleasant living living ways, but the notion of a conserving attitude can be, again, at the scale of choosing to repair instead of replace a component of your building, like right. windows. Um, and it can also be a conserving a- attitude can, can get scaled up to the way countries and economies think about the health of their, of their country and, and the economy is often through gross domestic product. And there's been some right, some accurate criticism that that assumes that growth and growing and expanding is the only way to be healthy. And um, as some of us might know about our waistlines, that's not necessarily the only (laughs) way to be healthy. And so looking at some other measures, such as, you know, poverty levels and life expectancy, and there are some other ways, if you switch from a sort of expanding growth related attitude towards a conserving attitude, um, that things that things can uh, be put in clear perspective or our frame of reference can sort of align better with having a habitable planet and um, sensitive cultural resources and touchstones. So this is becoming a very long answer. The only, the only other thing <laughs> I wanted okay. to say on a sort of a little bit more technical note is that Um, at one place in the book, we're talking about different energy sources. And so with sustainable design, oftentimes, or green building, the focus is very much on how much energy are you using and how to make it more efficient or better use your resources. And there are lessons from the past in a very sort of literal way that we can that we can derive um, to help inform the ways we're redesigning our energy systems. So for example, historically societies have relied more on renewable energy sources and also mixes of sources. So instead of only having a coal fired plant that produces electricity, they're using a local um, stream or river that powers wind. And then they're also, um, you know, using the heat source to help, and gathering wood, et cetera. So mixes of energy sources, um, and then alignments between energy sources and the tasks that the energy is used to accomplish. Um, and so these are, those are three or four ways that as we're thinking really big picture and redesigning major systems, mostly, um, that that's a, those are some lessons from the past, the ways we used energy that can then can inform or be uh, distilled into principles that might inform the way we reimagine energy sources in the future. Very good, thank you. Is uh, um, is there anything that you wanted to share from the book or from your from your experience that you know we didn't get to a chance to cover or I didn't ask you about? Um, 
during our, our episode? Um, one thing I find is, um, as a society, we get very consumed in the present, particularly with the news media feed mm. and sort of the, the rhythms of daily life. Um, at least coming from my background in planning, where we metaphorically talk about having one foot in the present and one foot in the past as we look to the future, I think we need to remember that, you know, a lot of these things have been experienced in similar ways in the past of what we're trying to address right now. And that sometimes you know, we can find answers or, you know, ideas for addressing contemporary problems from what was done in the past, or at least to learn from those experiences as we try to look forward to the future. I think that's important. I think that I, yeah, I think a lot, I think it's human nature, but I think a lot of people feel like this is the only time anything like this has ever happened, and you know, and it's happening to me, and what am I going to do? <laughs> and and it's true. There's you can look towards the past for a lot of a lot of answers to to solutions to problems that that we that we have now, and also probably ways to to plan for a better future. I agree. Yeah, I guess the last thing I would. I would add is that it's really wonderful when you realize that your value set is sort of aligned well with another person's value set. And that I think that there's a lot of that between preservationists and conservationists. And sometimes it's just about learning the language so that you can code switch between the two so that as a preservationist, you know, some of the words, you know, some of the ways to tap into those essential ideas that somebody who is, you know, really wanting to, to do something good for the environment so that you use the language where you understand that they're really aligned values. And so I think that's one of, one of the things that we hope um, is helpful in the book is that it's giving that foundation to people coming from either camp or neither camp to be able to sort of talk to each other across, across those boundaries a little bit with some, with some basic foundational ideas from each movement and shared components of both. I, I agree with you. I think that that's important too, because I think there there is that overlap and people, yeah, you might just need to learn the the language or, you know, you might be talking about the same thing. You're just not using the same, the same vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So how can, or how should our, our listeners contact you? For me, the best way would be by email. Okay. And at the College of Charleston, that's my last name, Stiefel, S-T-I-E-F-E-L, then B as in Barry for my first name, and then at cofc.edu. Similarly, email is great for me, and mine is actually through Clemson University. So it's A-L-E-I-F-E-S at clemson.edu. And on our website, when um, this is up, it, your that information will be on there too, so it's easy okay. for people to to come and find it easy. Um, where can people buy the book? Are you doing any seminars or anything? I know that the world's kind of upside down right now, so at least tell us where we can buy the book. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the book can be obtained through the publisher Rutilage, uh, with the ebook being uh, the best economical environmental deal. Um, and I actually, I, I do teach, teach a class annually on the overlap between uh, preservation and environmental conservation, uh, which I uh, do online. I actually originally developed it when I was a doctoral student uh, at Tulane University when its campus was closed due to Hurricane Katrina. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we can learn 
from experiences in the past about contemporary situations. Uh, we are also happy to provide advice or consultation to anyone out there working on his sustainability related preservation projects. And uh, we're also interested in keeping an eye out for our students to have uh, career building internships if anyone okay. else might have such opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, nothing to add. Thanks, Barry. Perfect. <laughs> okay, very good. And we'll, we'll make sure that we have that listed also on the website so that every the the link to the podcast and everything is right there so that people can find it easily. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, I appreciate it. I felt like I, I, I learned some big ideas and some big concepts that I'm going to have to work into, into some of the things that we do too. Perfect. Thank you well, so thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.